back to Fund Your Future with DRS. Today we're continuing our talk about healthcare, and if you've ever thought about changing to a different health insurance plan, the time to do it is during open enrollment, which happens every fall. And in the studio today, we have Dave from HCA, who's the program director of the PEB and SEB programs. Welcome, Dave. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I'm great to be here. I'm really excited to um, help everyone understand a little bit more about the PEB and SEB programs. Yeah, just to start off with the basics, what does PEB and SEB stand for? The Public Employee Benefits Board and the School Employee Benefits Board. And those are two separate programs administered at the Healthcare Authority. The PEB program is generally for state employees, and that includes people at state agencies, higher education institutions, as well as a lot of local governments, um, cities, counties, municipalities, water districts, hospital districts, transportation districts, anything that has the word district in it, uh, essentially uh, can voluntarily join the PEB program. The PEB program also covers retirees from all sectors, which includes K-12 members. K-12 active employees are covered under the School Employee Benefits Board program. So our K-12 members who might be listening, you start your active employment in the SEB program, but when you retire, you transition to the PEB program. If you're somebody who's a state agency or a higher education employee, you start in the PEB program, and when you retire, you stay in the PEB program. <laughs> right. <laughs> you might wonder why is that, and that was because back in the early 90s, there was a bill that started to consolidate all of those um, public employees from all sectors into a single program, but then the legislation changed, and after the retiree consolidation happened, it took 30 years until the SEP program was made as a separate program. So that's <laughs> a little bit of as to why there's that confusion. Yeah, so obviously we're here today to talk about how some of these premiums are increasing this fall during open enrollment for the health insurance plans. But to start off with the basics, what are some of the frequently asked questions that you get from retirees? Yeah, and now I'll say we cover about 725,000 Washingtonians and about 110,000 of them are retirees. Wow. Um, that's both Medicare retirees, people who are eligible for Medicare, so age 65 or older, um, and then non-Medicare retirees, which refers to somebody who has retired but is yet, not yet 65. <laughs> uh, so whatever age, but you've not yet qualified for Medicare is the way I say it. And from our retiree population, I'd say I get asked maybe three things on a regular basis. And so the first thing I want to reassure people about if you're a retiree listening is that UMP Classic Medicare is not closing. That there's no plan, there's no um, work or efforts to discontinue or close that plan. And so that's the number one reassurance or question that I'm getting from um, our retiree population. The second is what plans can retirees access that have nationwide coverage? Mm -hmm. A lot of people are familiar with UMP, the Uniform Medical Plan Classic, um, Medicare plan that is nationwide. But there are other plans that also have nationwide networks. So that's our Primera supplemental plans, mm -hmm. both Plan F as in Frank and G as in Gary. Plan F is no longer open to enrollment, but Plan G is, and both of those have nationwide networks. And then our United Healthcare, PEB Complete and PEB Balance plans that are Medicare Advantage plans that are offered um, and authorized by the PEB board are also nationwide plans. So there's several options and all of those plans in some way, shape or form include travel benefits, which are often very important for retirees. The third question that we get asked quite a bit is people love plan F or G from Primera, but they really wanna know, can that plan be expanded to have vision coverage, hearing coverage, a gym membership, prescription coverage? And the short answer is no, because there are specific federal regulations about what it takes to be called a Plan F or be called a Plan G, and it has a very specific benefit design. And so by definition, 
a plan G cannot have those benefits. Mm. It has to have a specific benefit structure. So if you want those types of benefits, we have those benefits in the other plan offerings, but they by definition cannot be included in a plan F or a plan G. So Dave, I, I know I've been receiving some things in the mail. My wife who works for the school districts has been receiving some things in the mail, uh, letting folks know that we should be paying close attention during open enrollment and that uh, some premiums are going up and, and folks should be doing some research prior to open enrollment. So could you just tell us a little bit about why monthly premiums are increasing next year? Yeah, and I'm really glad that you're start, You're hearing that <laughs> message. Our number one message we're trying to get people to um, is, is to engage in open enrollment this year like you've never engaged before, so to speak. <laughs> um, school employees had their inaugural open enrollment in 2020, and this open enrollment has the most significant um, changes and impacts that they should be considering since the program launched. For PEB employees, some state employees have not engaged in open enrollment in their entire career. Mm -hmm. I know that my deputy director had said, I elected my plan in the 80s, I said it, forget <laughs> it, and I never looked at it again. And I am really hoping that people engage if you've never engaged engaged or haven't engaged in a long time because there are substantial premium increases in a variety of plans. But there are also some plans that may be more affordable that people haven't looked at or they haven't engaged and seen in the portfolio that there are more plans offered today than when they initially enrolled. And that can be true for both a Medicare retiree or a state employee. There aren't new plans for school employees, <laughs> but there are a variety of different um, options that might not have been available. So for the premium increases, you know, Kaiser Permanente plans are kind of the biggest news that, that's there. There are some really substantial um, increases in the Kaiser area. Almost all of the Kaiser plans are seeing some sort of double digit and in some instances triple digit percent increases for those premiums. And I want to highlight that this is not something that's unique to our market. Kaiser has a variety of geographic regions across the nation. They have about 12 different regions and they're seeing changes and increases that are substantial in all of their markets. Um, so this isn't something that's unique to just Washington. It's also not unique to just the PEB and SUB program. There are increases that are in individual market plans that people might go out and buy. So it's, it's not something that's unique is one piece that I want people to understand. But really, Kaiser has expressed that there are a lot of workforce shortages. I mean, we've been hearing mm -hmm. about potential strikes in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. um, we all know that we, uh, many of us are, uh, have friends or colleagues or know people that have worked in the health um, industry and understand that there's a lot of pressure in staffing levels, um, patient safety levels, and things of that sort that are really driving a lot of workforce conversations and salary negotiations and traveling nurses that are mm -hmm. coming in or traveling staff that are more expensive than permanent staff. And so they believe because of their integrated model where they are both a purchaser and providing health care versus just an insurance company like some other parts of the market, that they are on the front end of seeing the, con the conglomeration of those effects that are pushing up their operational costs, which is then spilling over into mm. what they are setting as premiums for, for the plans. Now, I do want to say that the PEB board and subboard did authorize these premium increases. The PEB and subboards both were really at a a point where they either had to accept the rates as they were presented last summer or close the plans. And quite frankly, the boards really kind of 
voiced or if you go back into the the minutes and the audio recordings of our board meetings, they were really frustrated with these premium increases, but they also didn't want to take away the choice and simply then have everyone have to transition plans. There are people who are in very various treatment cor- courses of treatment, maybe for a cancer treatment or uh, organ transplant, that there may be a high burden for that premium increase, but they really want to continue the care where they are right now. And so the boards both really felt that it was important to at least maintain that choice and have people kind of evaluate their options and then um, see what the status of the plans can be um, in future years. But for now, not allowing people to vote with their feet and vote with their dollars, but making sure that people were aware that these increases were happening. So Dave, you touched on this a little bit. What is the healthcare authority, uh, your organization, uh, doing to address the increased premiums for UMP, Classic, and uh, Medicare specific? So I just talked a little bit about the Kaiser premium increases, but there's also a substantial increase in the Uniform Medical Classic Medicare plan. So this is specific for our Medicare retirees. It's a premium increase of cl- close to, I believe it's 95 or $96 a month um, each month next year. And this is on top of a similar increase uh, that happened from 2020 to 2023. So this is the second year of a really substantial increase. We have a variety of materials on our website that go through some of the cost impacts and what is really driving the Uniform Medical Plan Classics premiums increases specifically. That plan is run by the state. The overall liability for the plan is with the state. There's not a profit margin within the Uniform Medical Plan. It's called a self-insured plan. So the the employer, the state of Washington, has the total kind of end of day risk for all the claims that are paid out of that plan. And it's run and administered by the healthcare authority and we contract out various parts of that work to regents for the medical part of the plan and to MODA or Washington Prescription Drug Services or RayRx. There's a variety of different names that it goes by (laughs) that you might see on your card for the pharmacy side of the benefit. But the structure of that plan is such that the Uniform Medical Plan does not qualify for really substantial federal subsidies in the way that the other plans in our portfolio Mm. do. So without those subsidies, we're left with, well, what's the risk of the population that's enrolled? What is, you know, with the demographics, their utilization, the cost of of the services that they're providing? And our population is aging, we're using more services, and uh, in the last year or two, as people have moved different plans because they're focused on what they're paying for premium, we've seen some of the healthier parts of our population move to other plans, kind of puts upward pressure on those premium. That makes sense and is interesting and very complicated. You sort of touched on this in your answer already. Be curious if you want to expand on what the healthcare authority is doing specifically to try to address those increase in premiums? Well, the, the way I've described it is the main way that the Uniform Medical Plan could qualify for subsidies for the federal government is for Congress to change the Social Security Act. Mm. So an act of Congress <laughs> literally could open up this opportunity. And so we've been highlighting where we believe the law limits access to plans like the Uniform Medical Plan. Director Birch and I met with the administrator of CMS last February and we're describing some of our concerns about the competitiveness of Medicare Advantage plans versus plans like the Uniform Medical Plan. So we're directly speaking with the highest levels of leadership at at, at CMS in DC. Uh, We drafted a letter that was sent to the congressional delegation here in Washington. That letter is published on our our website on our, our 
retiree engagement page for anybody who wants to find a copy of it. We have also provided it to a lot of retiree stakeholder um, executive directors and leadership. And we know that some of them have been using it as an advocacy tool as they speak with the congressional delegation. But that's the let's get Congress to change the law mode. Um, the <laughs> other piece that we've been working on is over the last year, um, year and a half, we've been trying to help people understand what types of changes to UMP would or wouldn't impact premium. Mm -hmm. um, there are some classic examples. We did not go through every benefit design idea that people suggested, but we did some of the greatest hits, if you will. People will often ask, what if you just increase the out-of-pocket maximum? What if you doubled it? I'd be willing to pay 1000 or $2,000 more over the course of a year if it meant my premiums went down. Mm -hmm. Or what if you created a different um, specialty drug tier for some of those highest cost drugs that had a little bit of a higher copay? Or what if, you know, I pay 17 cents for my generic drug right now, I'd be willing to spend $5 on that generic drug. <laughs> Maybe that would make a difference. And we went through all of those different ideas. And the reality is none of those do any significant, in some instances, they make a negligible impact on premium hmm. for the vast majority of individuals. And so we did a presentation, I believe it was in April of 2023, going through some of these just to show, oh, you could do that, but it actually is not going to net out as any difference in cost when you look at it across the year for 95, 98% of the population. And oh. instead, you're going to have increased costs for 2 to 5% with no decrease net cost for the vast majority. And so mm. that isn't where you're going to get premium relief. And so we help, you know, try to help people understand some of that. Then we did a survey of um, Medicare offered plans uh, across, the, uh, across the country and really discovered that as we had anticipated, we didn't realize how unique Washington was, but there are really no other states that do it the way that we do or have plans <laughs> that are as robust in coverage as UMP Classic Medicare, that it, it really is a uniquely rich benefit that is offered in our state compared to every other state um, in the country. We have more plan options than other states as well. Yeah. So as we started looking at that, though, we realized there were a couple of states that had something the closest to what they had for us was they had a plan that has a different way that they've structured their pharmacy benefit. Hmm. And so that's where we've been focusing our efforts on right now is what are the minimum changes that could be made to the Uniform Medical Plan Classic Medicare's pharmacy benefit to allow it to qualify for federal subsidies that it otherwise can't qualify for. And I know that that's a really scary concept for people because we're talking about, well, what, what would happen if drug coverage changed? It's really important to focus on the, words, the minimum necessary <laughs> changes. So we're looking at exactly what drug formularies would change. Um, and we're going to be able to present that information to the PEB board next board season. I would encourage anyone who's listening who's really interested in this topic <laughs> to join and listen in on the public meetings that are in February, March, and April. I will also highlight that we have a legislative <laughs> report that is due December 1st of this year, um, so just in a couple of weeks here. That really is, uh, it will be published on our website, um, and we're looking at sending maybe a letter to all retirees so that they can be aware of how to find this report, because one thing that this report does is it kind of goes through the entire last year's journey and stitches it together in one narrative. You don't have to find 10 hyperlinks on two different pages at, on our website. It is all there on HDA's website, but it kind of stitches it together in a singular narrative. But that core report would be a, a really good place for people to kind of see the big picture and the building of the story of the work that has been done by HCA. Hmm. Um, in the last year and a half. So Dave, here at DRS, we help retirees pay their monthly premiums on time to HCA by offering pension deduct 
payment options. Mm -hmm. But with the increases in 2024, do you have any suggestions or concerns to raise awareness for retirees who use this particular payment method? Well, first, I'd like to highlight that we have about two-thirds of all of our accounts that do pay premiums via DRS Pension Deduct. And it really is the a very secure, safe, and easy way to make those premium payments. Um, the money just comes directly over from DRS to HCA. We apply it to the accounts, and it's all done. And there's you know very little um, risk of your premium ever being untimely paid. But what happens when there are premium increases is people assume that their pension payments will continue to cover the premium the next year. And if there's a large premium increase and depending on how much their pension did or didn't change on a COLA, that pension payment may no longer be able to fully pay the premium that's owed to HCA. We can't accept partial payment from DRS, and DRS can't send us partial payment either. Um, our systems aren't set up for that kind of prorated ability. So what happens is if somebody's pension payment doesn't cover the full premium, that payment mechanism is turned off on their account, and then the healthcare authority will eventually start invoicing the um, retiree. So what we really encourage people to do, and if you've looked at your recent newsletter, um, retirees, it's on page eight. I'll just <laughs> highlight that. Um, there's some information that reminds people to check your pension deductions and to kind of anticipate and look to see if you think you may no longer be able to use pension deduct. And alert HCA, call us, and tell us that you think that that's the situation that's gonna happen so that we can get you on the proper inv invoicing cycle earlier rather than later. Eventually the system will catch up, but if it's the long path, the unfortunate situation that happens is a retiree will get their first pension payment of the year. It'll be larger than they expect. They won't realize that their premium hasn't been paid. And when oh. the first invoice comes from the healthcare authority, it'll actually be for two months premium instead of one month premium. Okay. And so we want to avoid that type of situation. So if you are someone who your pension payment that you get, your, your net payment that you're receiving from DRS is s relatively small, you're more likely to have this situation happen to you. So with open enrollment in general, um, I guess for active employees and for retirees, um, what are the things that we all should consider when we're looking or the possibility of changing you know, medical insurance for next year? The first thing is to think about more of the total costs that you will pay over the year, not just the premium. Mm -hmm. A lot of people focus, understandably focus on the premium. That's the amount that's gonna come out of your paycheck or out of your account or out of your pension payment each month. Um, but there, you know, that premium is really not the only cost that you're going to have. If mm -hmm. Most of us are gonna have some sort of engagement with the healthcare system during the year. <laughs> and so the other parts of coverage that are really important is to understand what your deductible is. That's the amount that you have to pay upfront. You know, you have to cover 100% of the deductible before your plan's coverage kicks in. So if you have a deductible um, of $250, then you're going to pay that full $250 before you start getting a split of uh, charges on services. And what I mean by a split on charges of services is, you know, some plans have a co-payment model, a flat amount that you pay when you engage in services, and others have a co-insurance model, which is a percentage that you're gonna pay on the bill, and the plan will pay one part of the percent, like maybe 80% of the bill, and you're gonna pay 20%. That 80-20 coverage or that co-payment world doesn't exist until you've paid your deductible. So it's not just the premium that you're paying every month, but it's the deductible that you may face for services. And that deductible can range um, in some of our plans, you through a wellness incentive, you can get it down to $0. <laughs> and in other plans, it can go up to $1,400, $1,500. Um, I believe the 
Um, high deductible health plan is set at 1650 next year because of IRS rules. So it can range quite a bit. And then those coinsurance or copayment models, it could be 15% or 20%. And so if you know that you're somebody who engages in a lot of chiropractic care or a lot of massage care, and you can see, oh, it's, you know, $15, $20 a, a visit. And I'm using those as illustrative examples, you have to check the specific <laughs> cost because each plan has a slightly different cost share that's associated with it. Um, but if you know I go for 10 visits and I'm paying $20 a visit for those, that's $200 right there. And you, you can anticipate those needs out, out of the gate. Um, and you might want to pick a plan that has a slightly higher premium if it has a lower copay because some people like to pay more upfront, other people like to wait till the point of services, but you really need to think about your premiums, your deductibles, and you really need to think about prescription drug costs. Mm -hmm. And you may need to look if you're, especially if you're thinking of switching plans, you need to understand is the drug I'm on today covered under the plan I want to go to? Mm -hmm. um, and the, really the best way to understand that is to call the new plan directly and understand and say, I'm on X drug, is X drug covered by you? And you can tell them, I'm thinking of switching to your plan. They're gonna be very engaged <laughs> in wanting to help answer that question to the best of their ability because they know that not understanding if your prescriptions you're on today are covered tomorrow would be a barrier for you ever considering switching to their plan. So they're, they'll give you the honest answer, but they will engage with you on that. And it's something very important if you're um, on prescription drugs to make sure you understand what is it gonna be covered under the new plan and what those co-pays or cost shares are gonna be under the new plan so that you can kind of balance that. Yeah, I love the example you gave earlier, kind of paying attention to what those particular costs are. like you might be able to switch to a different plan where maybe you're paying $2 more for a particular prescription drug, but your premiums overall on an annual basis are like $6,000 less. Mm -hmm. And so it is important to go in and look at those figures and kind of see like, okay, I could pay like a little bit more for these prescription drugs to get a lesser premium. Yeah, it's absolutely important to think about the net overall costs. Mm -hmm. um, I know it can be frustrating to go pick up a drug that you're used to paying, you know, 25 cents for every 30 days, and now you're paying $5 for it. But if the plan that costs where you're paying $5 is $100 less in premium every month, mm -hmm. you'd have to be picking up 20, 30 drugs a month for the $5 you're paying per drug to offset that annual premium um, savings that you have. So it's really important to think about that big picture, even though, yes, you're, you might under one plan pay a little bit more when you're actually picking up your drug. What are the resources? I, I know I got some stuff in the mail. I can read through those kind of high level overviews. But if I need to get into that kind of more nitty gritty detail to understand how much my massage appointments are going to cost, where where are the best places to go for additional information? So on HCA's website, there are a couple of different places. We have an enrollment page, one that is dedicated for PEB active employees and non-Medicare retirees, one that is for school employees, and a third one that is for PEB Medicare retirees. <laughs> and so we have specific open enrollment landing pages for each of those. And on each of those, there's a variety of drop downs and hyperlinks that get you to plan comparisons or a tool that you can say, I want to compare A, B, and C. I don't want to see something that shows all seven plans. I just want to see these three plans and it can go through and it will highlight those different cost shares. Yeah. Um, so that's one place. We also have a virtual benefits fair that's available 24-7 um, via the website and you can access it on mobile devices, laptops, you know, you know, iPads, anything. And how does um, that work, a virtual benefits fair? Yeah, it's, it's similar to our in-person benefits fairs except you're 
not in person. You don't get any fun swag. So you can talk get. to a person well, virtually. that's the part that's different. So I'll start with a benefits fair, and then I'll describe the virtual okay. benefits fair. Because <laughs> our benefits fairs um, at the University of Washington started um, recently, and then throughout the beginning of November, the end of October, beginning of November, we have staff that are across the state in about 15 different locations for in-person benefit fairs. Um, our partners and insurance carriers and vendors are all required to be at those um, benefits fairs, and so they're a place for you to come and talk to people in person. Person, whether they're from the healthcare authority or from the individual plants. And you can pick up different flyers and paperwork and comparisons and swags sometimes that they have and, um, and, and get questions answered in real time. The virtual benefits fairs is designed to convey the same information but without that in-person engagement. So there are virtual booths that have videos that you can watch. Gotcha. Now there aren't videos in the in-person benefits fair but it's helped to design and we've asked all of the carriers to identify what are, you know, the couple of questions that you anticipate are you know, frequently asked and cover those in your videos so that you're most likely going to get some of your key questions answered by the nature of the videos that they've made. And they'll have their flyers up there and then they'll have plan comparisons and um, how to access the provider directory so that if you want to confirm that your provider is still um, anticipated to be in network or they're in the new network of the plan that you're thinking about going to, mm -hmm. that's an access point. Um, so the virtual benefits fair, uh, the in-person benefits fairs, our, our landing pages on HCA's website, those are all key places. And then you can just directly contact the plans as well. If you have a question that's specific about what, is, what a plan does or doesn't do and you can't find the answer anywhere, you can just call them. And again, say, I'm thinking about switching to your plan. That right there <laughs> is going to up the ante for their engagement um, in wanting to answer your question because they know if they can't answer your question, that will weigh against your consideration of moving to that plan. Yeah, so we're in this open enrollment period right now where people can change their health insurance. How do people go about changing that, that medical plan for next year? Right. Well, the most important thing to know is when is the date that you have to make changes by, and it is different for the two programs. For the School Employee Benefits Board program, for those active school employees, their enrollment ends on Monday, November 20th. That's 11.59 Pacific time on November 20th. <laughs> 2023. Of 2023. That is correct. And for the PEB program, for both um, state employees, higher education employees, and all retirees, that deadline is November 30th. 11.59 p.m. November 30th, 2023. <laughs> and you have to make your changes, and those changes have to be received by those deadlines. Not postmarked. They actually have to be received <laughs> for school employees and for state employees who aren't making their initial elections, you have the ability to do that electronically online in SebMy account or PebMy account. And so you would be able to go up until 11.58. I wouldn't encourage you to really go to 11.59, <laughs> but you could do your submission electronically online up until you know 11.59 on the applicable final date. Again, the 20th for school employees and then the 30th for um, state employees. For retirees, many of the changes require an electronic signature, and we will be rolling out a new system that will have the ability to have an electronic enrollment next year. That won't be for this <laughs> open enrollment, so that means most people do need to submit a paper form. And that's why it's so important to keep that receipt received by deadline. Um, if you put it in the mailbox on the 30th, it's not going to be received in time. And some of the reasons why it has to be received rather than um, submitted or postmarked by that day is there are certain pieces of information that the healthcare authority needs to engage with 
um, the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on for certain enrollments. And so there's these transactions and data files that have to go back and forth between the healthcare authority and the federal government. And that has to happen in December. And we need to get all that done in time so that we can get out new enrollment packets and anybody who's newly enrolled in switching plans, their cards. And there's just a very short window. But so for retirees, you can submit it. There's a fax number on the form. There's a post office box. If you were in the greater Olympia area, you can drop it off at the healthcare authority <laughs> in person in our lobby. Um, those are all mechanisms, but I encourage you to, as a retiree, consider a live benefits fair in the beginning of November, make that decision. And in your mind, think of it as I've got to get it in the mail before Thanksgiving. Um, luckily, Thanksgiving is almost a full week before the end of the month this year. <laughs> um, but the earlier you can submit that, the better. And you should have already, as a retiree, received a customized packet um, in the mail about um, your specific um, current enrollments and information for you to be able to research your plan choices for 2024. The forms are available um, both online and you'll be able to pick them up at benefits fairs if you go to them as well. Um, they can be downloaded off of uh, our website as well and filled out. Just submit it earlier is my recommendation. So for Seth and myself who are active in employees who have been working for the state for a couple of years, we can just go online and make those changes directly online without having to fill out a paper form. That's absolutely correct. Great. The one other thing that I, I should highlight for retirees is that open enrollment for the PEB program is different than the federal Medicare open enrollment period. You will probably have already seen commercials talking about you have until early December to make your changes. Mm -hmm. That's what CMS is describing in all of their news. And that's what, you know, the Joe Namus of the world and all the other famous actors that are in all of the commercials are doing. They're describing the general insurance market. They're not describing um, kind of individual public or private employers um, retiree benefits offerings. So don't be confused by the deadlines you see in the news or in commercials because those are not applicable to the PEB program. The PEB program's open enrollment ends 11.59 on November 30th of 2023 <laughs> for um, PEB retirees and, and active PEB employees. I really appreciate how much your office sends information in the mail. It reminds me that I need to look at something and gives me general information that I can then find additional resources on. But I'm, I'm curious what the best ways for both active employees and retirees to, to stay in the loop about healthcare related things um, going forward. You mentioned some websites, um, some, some accounts. I'm just curious if there are other places folks should be going. For kind of like the latest, greatest hot topics that are kind of anticipating upcoming future changes or policy discussions, it's actually the board meetings. We have separate public meetings of the PEB and SEB boards. January through July is board season. Okay. With the full rate development process in the public eye, really in that June to July area, the broader policy conversations and potential changes in eligibility rules or some of the benefit design changes, that tends to be more in the spring. So if you go onto HCA's website, one of the best ways to do it is just type in PEBB meetings or SEBB meetings, <laughs> and then you'll get start to get some links, some search results that say meetings and materials. And if you click into those, you'll see all the meetings and materials information from the past couple of years, the resolutions have been acted on. And at the very top of that is also a call out box. I believe it's in bright blue that says, do you want to stay informed about what's happening with the board? Sign up for this listserv. And then you'll get notifications of those materials being available. And you can see the things that are up for discussion and the um, presentation 
recommendations that we're making publicly for the board to help guide and shape and make recommendations to the board about how things can be refined or, or, or changed in the future. We're describing what's happening during the legislative session for bills that are impacting or could impact our bills, uh, our programs. It's really a good fertile ground for understanding kind of the policy discussions that are happening for both the near and short term. One of my takeaways from this conversation has been like, it's really easy to have inertia, like you, you set it and forget it, which is oftentimes great when we're talking about retirement stuff. You, you, you set your DCP contributions at 5% and you, but kind of with everything financial that Jenny, you and I have talked about on the podcast as well, it's like, it is also good to go back and check am I on track? Where am I at? And I think... Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like we talked about with budgeting, going in and checking your budget once a month. Yeah. And open enrollment is the exact right time to be doing that for your insurance coverage as well. And I've really appreciated the the perspective of looking at the total cost of the services, the plan that you're in, not just the the premium, not just the deductible, not just the cost of service, but all of those things put together um, and figure out how much did I spend? Ideally, how much did I spend last year? How much am I thinking about spending um, next year? I know um, when we had Kelsey from HCA on the podcast, she was talking about planning for having a child and understanding what that cost was going to be and what are the services that are covered. And I think those things are really important for everybody, no matter what stage they are in life. Um, and I don't know, Dave, if you have other thoughts about that, of, of things that people are, should be considering kind of in totality. Well, I think it's just important to realize that, um, and this, this isn't a judgment call, it's just kind of what the, the numbers show is as we get older, whatever age, we're going to use more services. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, people, uh, it's natural for people to feel healthy today and then suddenly something's happening tomorrow. And so it's just really important to not underestimate, you know, that as we go further in life and further in retirement, we're going to have healthcare expenses. Tomorrow's expenses are going to be greater than they were last year. Mm-hmm. From an actuarial standpoint, we all are getting riskier every day that we live. Um, we're, Dang it. You know, it's, it's really unfortunate that, that that just tends to happen. And if we were able to reverse time, then we'd have a whole lot of other expenses in, in society. It's just important to not underestimate that you will have expenses. I mean, the, there's countless financial um, uh, analysis done about you know, the significant, one of the most significant costs of retirement is healthcare. That, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to spend, I think, three, four hundred thousand dollars each in today's dollars um, in, in healthcare expenses during the course of a quote normal retirement. Because what I don't want people to do is to sign up for a plan, then something happens, and they're like, oh, I can't afford that deductible. And then they're weighing whether they should have treatment or whether they should face that deductible now. When the reality is, the longer you postpone care, the more expensive it's going to be for you and you're not going to be the best you that you can be today. You're going to be dealing with whatever condition you're not having managed because you're considering not going to the doctor because you don't want to face the deductible of the plan because you focused on the premium and you were glad to have a low premium today without realizing the deductible you'd face later. Whereas, you know, some people from a budget mindset, they'll go, oh, I'd rather pay more upfront on a predictable monthly basis than to save for the bigger expense that might happen later in the year. Yeah, that's a really good point of trying to 
make sure your plan matches you as well. And, and if, if you're choosing a plan with a higher deductible, making sure you have an emergency fund set aside to cover those inevitable costs down the road and, and making sure that you're thinking about it in your overall financial life. Well, thanks, Dave. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yep, I really enjoy being able to collaborate with DRS um, to work on reaching out to the members that we both serve yes. every day. There's a lot of overlap and a lot of opportunities to um, cross-collaborate, and this is just another great example. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, and now we'd love to hear from you. What topics would you like to hear about? What questions do you have for us? Send an email to drs.podcasts at drs.wa.gov. That's drspodcasts at drs.wa.gov. The Department of Retirement Systems provides this podcast as a public service, but it's neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of DRS policy. References to any specific product or entity do not constitute an endorsement or recommendation. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by DRS employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of DRS or any of its officials.